disagreeable subjects, my show about what I find interesting, amazing, terrible, all of these things sometimes. So we're now into week 1000 of quarantine, and we're all starting to show our frustration in different ways. Like the other day, I was holding my cat, and my fiancé sneezed, and the cat, whose claws we had not trimmed very recently, was alarmed. She was so alarmed that she tried to get out of my arms, and in doing so, she got her claw stuck in my neck right behind my ear. She was upset, and I had also started making kind of an, ah, I'm in pain sort of sound, which only alarmed the cat more. So the scratches continued. Eventually, the cat's claw was dislodged from my neck, and she settled down. For some reason, though, like, I couldn't. I ended up just, like, bawling as though someone I loved had died. It made no sense. Why would I cry so much for no reason other than a cat scratch? But this is the quarantines, so of course I did. So, you know, we're all responding differently. We're all having different kinds of meltdowns. Some people are focused on attempting to end the quarantine. In my last show, we talked a little bit about how people are responding to the continued quarantine, discussing meme warfare and Rush Limbaugh hot takes. And there was a fairly stark admission by a professor interviewed in a Vox article that you can read in my show notes that basically no one knows who these protesting the continued restrictions are, but she believed they were predominantly Donald Trump acolytes. I don't know why we don't just ask somebody who's involved in these protests. So... I reached out to Matthew Hayward, a libertarian-friendly acquaintance who has been on the show before and who has been organizing a lot of these protests here in Washington State. You may remember Matthew from my episodes about the fi- about the firearms debate in that series I did. Gotta say, there is something to talking up to a self-aware radical that is like a radical who knows just how radical their position is that I find refre- refreshing. So here is my interview with Matthew Hayward. Our guest today is Matthew Hayward. We have had Matthew Hayward on the show before when we did our gun episodes. Um, So yeah, thanks for being on the show again. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on again. Thank you. Um, Just as a reminder, do you want to tell our guests a little bit about your background and how you come to to kind of be in this more libertarian space now? Uh, Well, I'd say the the short story is I was a neoconservative uh, I could have been quoted as saying we should turn the whole Middle East into a sheet of glass at one point after 9-11. And probably around 2006, uh, 2007, I was introduced to Ron Paul. And uh, I just started being more open-minded and reading and listening and uh, really came to believe that the traditional Republican Party and neoconservatives were not limited government and did not really represent my values. And that was really the the shift for my Republican to more libertarian leaning. Um, all right. So today we are talking about coronavirus lockdown, all of these regulations that have been passed to ostensibly protect us from the coronavirus, but that many folks feel maybe have gone too far or weren't necessary to the extent that they, they were imposed in the first place. So Tell me about sort of the movement against these continued restrictions due to coronavirus and how sort of your role in them. Sure. So uh, I was a little bit ahead of the curve uh, opposing this, uh, the lockdown shelter in place. I actually was 
fairly acceptant of it in the beginning uh, from a voluntary standpoint and did my part to uh, socially distance and avoid going out unnecessarily. And at the very beginning, I, uh, I think that it was two weeks they, they have originally said they were going to uh, have this happen. And I said I'd go for three. Uh, but after three weeks, I was done. I wasn't going to be doing any uh, shifting of timelines. And of course, we've seen that happen several times now. So I actually set up a protest for April 11th. There was about a dozen people, and it ended up being more of a Second Amendment get-together than uh, what I intended. I think I was the only one who was not open carrying or armed. I actually was wearing soccer clothes and cleats. I was originally hoping, <laughs> yeah, I was originally hoping to get a little pickup soccer game because that had been shut down for a while. But uh, I ended up kicking the ball around with one or two people. However, the state troopers did come over and talk with us and told us that they were not going to require us to uh, disperse and they were not going to require that we socially distance. Uh, but they did ask that we voluntarily socially distance. And one of the gentlemen that was there um, re-asked, restated the question to the officer that we were not being required to do it. And the police officer affirmed that and then asked again, just to make it clear that we were just being asked to do it voluntarily and the officer uh, agreed. So we voluntarily uh, moved apart from each other. And I think part of that was just we were pushing back against the authoritarianism of the stay-at-home order. It wasn't the concept or the principle, it was the by force. And I think most people have seen some of the more outrageous stories of someone out uh, surfing and getting in trouble or um, uh, fishing or something like that where people are getting in trouble for it. And I think that's what we were pushing is, are you actually going to enforce this or are you just suggesting that we do So this? just kind of a, I have two questions that sort of branch off of that uh, the first one being that, you know, given your sort of a, of a more limited government persuasion, is there any role that you think would be appropriate for the government to continue to take with this virus? And I guess, aside from just the role it would have, are there any things that you could see it enforcing that you would support? Man, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh... <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's a bit of a compound question, too. I I'm always torn between my idealism and my pragmatism, but I guess uh, I, I've always wanted government to coordinate voluntary action. Um, and, and I really want it. I don't support government force uh, and, unless it's very clearly necessary and outlined in the Constitution. So I, I would say I, I don't really support government having much of a role. I think that they're causing a lot of problems right now, uh, not only with shutting businesses down, but also with their attempts at solving the problem by providing stimulus checks and helping people with uh, financially, which is necessary, but it's only necessary because they have caused the people to need the money in the first place. So it's a government solution to a government problem. Uh, I think providing information to the public is key and then allowing people to make their own decisions and be responsible for their own actions. I feel like it's very difficult for the government to do something without some level of a compelling citizens to, to cooperate. Like I think that particularly in Washington state, I can think of several kind of recent laws that were passed or sort of political developments that they more or less 
they might create a system where you don't absolutely have to do exactly as they're saying, but it's so strongly recommended that and it becomes very tricky to kind of get out of it. Um, I, can you think of a time or any sort of example, I'm just trying to come up with something where the government has really effectively coordinated voluntary uh, I don't know, citizens joining in their idea volunteer their ideas voluntarily. Because I think I have a hard time thinking of that as potentially an effective measure, just because it seems like they usually use some level of coercion. I think that's that would be one of the reasons why it's hard to come up with an example, because we don't truly have free markets and there is government intervention in pretty much everything in one regard or another. So it, it's hard to <laughs> find an example of them being completely hands-off when they're incentivizing and de-incentivizing actions um, and, and manipulating markets. As an aside question too, so I'm just sort of thinking of this as, as we're talking about, because this is a, a virus scenario, you know, because it is something that operates differently than most things that the government has this level of intervention targeting. Um, I think it could be easy to sort of claim that one or two people not cooperating um, can really change the game here. It can really set up a situation where the virus continues to spread or continues to uh, put people in danger. And I think a lot of folks are sort of looking at the fact that this is a sort of unique seeming situation to say that, okay, the government can compel things on a much larger level because one or two people not obeying these orders could really ruin the whole thing. Like, I guess I could see folks making the argument that voluntary coordination here is not enough. I'm curious as to how you would respond to that. I really think there's a lot of hypotheticals there and it gets into a quickly uh, slippery, slippery slope of government policy. And uh, you see that with any debate, whether it's uh, the gun issue, uh, you name it, uh, climate change, where people start throwing out statistics and gloom and doom scenarios to justify any behavior they want. And I think that's exactly what we're dealing with here. I don't think that there is the evidence or the research to have mass hysteria and massive clampdowns on people's constitutional rights. Uh, that's not to say that you can't do something in the middle, but uh, I think the radical extremist uh, approach is, is definitely more of a political and uncalled for uh, scenario. These next few questions have to do specifically with, I suppose, media representation of the protesters. Um, I, I did a show that hasn't come out yet, but will today about kind of breaking down some of these ideas of are these protesters just the Republican Party? Are they, you know, where do they come from? What is their, what is their opinion on this? Um, what will they be satisfied with? And it was interesting because most of the news sources I could find just openly claimed, well, no one knows. No one knows who these people actually are or what they actually want, which I thought was very was really kind of odd, like nobody could just ask them. Um, but that seemed to be the almost the going narrative, or there were like several assumptions being made about them. So I wanted to kind of address this and get your perspective on some of these uh, media narratives about these protesters. So yeah, uh, the first one is that, you know, there's been a lot of editorializing going on about protesters holding signs that say things like, I need a haircut, 
You know, it's very easy to characterize protesters talking about these things that seem really trivial as being selfish. You know, the argument I've seen made is that they want the world to return to normal so they can have the conveniences they're used to having, regardless of the health impacts on others. So how do you read this interpretation or this this sort of characterization of protesters? I do think it's somewhat of a fallacious argument to try and claim that uh, a haircut or uh, going fishing or doing recreational activity is not important in light of uh, terrible tragedy. Um, essentially, the fundamental argument is life and liberty, and that is a, a difficult balancing act, but it doesn't matter how trivial the liberty is. Uh, you, you can't simply throw liberties out for the argument or sake of life. Uh, we have plenty of historical context for that. Um, there's the famous, uh, give me liberty or give me death. Um, one might argue that everyone who has ever fought and died for our country is being ignored or pushed to the side by people's desire to trade their liberty for some sense of security or safety. So uh, even though the haircut is just one trivial little example, um, I, I just don't think it's fair to easily just throw that out. I think that there's a, a delicate balancing act, regardless of how trivial the liberty is. So it's also been claimed that these protesters are out really in support of Trump, you know, that he wants to open the economy. And so these protesters are doing what they think he would like that to do, or he would like them to do. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts on on that interpretation. Well, I know personally, when I had planned my first protest, Trump was still on board with locking people down. So it certainly doesn't apply to me. Um, I do think there are plenty of Trump supporters. I don't know if their motive is influenced by Trump. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I would say they probably are influenced by media. Uh, unfortunately, I think m most Americans who are politically engaged in some level, um, unfortunately, listen to too much news uh, or fake media, whether it's MSNBC or Fox News, they get their talking points and they run with them. Uh, they're not typically the most open-minded people. And uh, that goes really strongly down both lines from what I've seen. Um, I just try and uh, work with people who are going for the same direction that I am. And I, there was a lot of people at the last rally with a lot of different views. There were certainly people there with uh, Trump flags and Trump stuff, but there were plenty who also were not voters of Trump like myself. The word astroturfing comes up a lot when we're talking about these protests. And to you know, listeners who aren't as, as familiar with the idea of what astroturfing is, it's basically when a, a larger group or media conglomerate or whatever, some large powerful entity is actually coordinating protests and making them appear as though they are grassroots. So there's been some claim that this is sort of astroturfed protests um, sponsored by those who want to place economic growth above <laughs> the value of lives lost to coronavirus. Do you see evidence of astroturfing here? And you know what would it change your opinion if you did? So I don't see any evidence of that here. I, like I said, I organized the first little protest. Um, I was involved slightly with the second larger one, and I've been in communication with organizers for the protest today uh, and the one on the ninth, which will be rather large. And it's activists from around Washington State. There's no outside influence or big money interests. 
Um, I do think that there are uh, interests that support what we're doing for their own reasoning, and they're just riding the wave, but they have nothing to do with what we're doing. And certainly we can benefit our movement pushing back against the shelter in place order can benefit from them giving us radio exposure or television exposure or talking about us. Uh, but I really think that uh, it's, it's a faulty way to look at it, that they're driving the bus. They're, they're riding on the bus. Um, sort of as a follow-up question, I've been thinking a lot personally about the idea of people who might agree with me, but sort of for the wrong reasons. And uh, I, that sounds very bachelor bachelorette TV show for the wrong reasons tagline, but um I feel like for me, it always worries me a little bit that the headline of what I'm advocating for will become this other person or this other entity. Um, and I'm more okay standing alone than partnering with people who I, or not even partnering, but being a, appearing as though I'm part of a movement that I'm not, or that might advocate for things that I actually find pretty repugnant. So when this sort of thing happens, where you know, you have your motivations, but something like a, a larger media organization might spin it a different way and still think it's supporting you, but have such a different uh, target or belief system or whatever. How do you how do you deal with that? Are you more are you concerned that the impression of what you're doing will be associated with these these other folks that you don't necessarily agree with? Or are you more focused on kind of getting the the policy or the idea out there and you're you're okay accepting these potentially strange bedfellows. <laughs> well, I've been involved with politics for a long time and uh, I've been the outreach director at the Freedom Foundation for a while now and I've become accustomed to personal attacks and uh, have seen for years how the media distort uh, and misrepresent politicians and people, including myself. So I, I think long ago I've learned to stop being concerned with how uh, things are going to be taken out of context. And I simply just do my best to present myself uh, in a positive light and stand up for what I believe in. And uh, I'm not going to be intimidated or uh, concerned into being silent uh, because of how I might be uh, looked at. What, how I, uh, what I believe in is liberty and freedom, and I'm not going to cower for that. Um, so I, I guess, no, I'm not concerned with that. I, I there's nothing you can do about how other people interpret your, what you're saying or how they choose to represent you. I've had letters just as recently as last week sent to all of my neighbors uh, personally attacking me with my home address name and slandering me uh, in association with things that I have absolutely nothing to do with at all. In fact, I deplore the things that they're claiming I'm associated with uh, and have actively worked against them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not concerned about that at all. So. I'm personally always skeptical of the power of protest, you know, except I feel like it's effective to garner media attention, but I'm skeptical otherwise. Are these protests, you know, do you expect them to be effective in ending stay-at-home orders or are they sort of more targeted at a different outcome? So I, I would agree with you. I normally am not a fan of protests and don't think that they typically have a whole lot of impact. Over the years, I've come to try and find the positives, one of them being uh, networking opportunities, um, motivation inspiring. Uh, but I, I agree. I don't think that there's typically that much impact. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. I, it's, it's definitely <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that's fair. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just a, 
you know, I think they can still be useful. I just, I think that it's always interesting to see, uh, you know, I've, int- I've interviewed you know, other people who organize protests. And I'm always curious about that question, just because some folks are very much like, well, this is, it's, here's what it's going to do. And others are like, you know, we got to say something. So this is how we're choosing to do it. Um, you know, you know, I, I, I guess I've always been a skeptic of sending emails or contacting your legislator to tell them what your thoughts are as well. Unless you're in a swing district, my experience has been in politics that it typically doesn't make any difference. Um, there are exceptions, but most politicians um, honestly are not going to be swayed by people who didn't vote for them to put them in office in the first place. Um, they're going to be moved more by their own supporters. So if people who voted for Jay Inslee, if people who voted for Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders were out there protesting to open up, I think we would open up tomorrow. Uh, I, I really think it's a lot of political calculations going in this, to be perfectly honest. So uh, the reason why I'm pushing forward with the protests and attending is because for me, it's somewhat of a line in the sand and I don't draw many lines in the sand any longer. I, I really try and pick my battles carefully, but this is one where I feel passionately and strongly enough where I'm willing to act in civil disobedience and I will not comply and I will have to be forcefully stopped from taking actions regarding my liberties. I'm not going to back down. So uh, I'm fine with being a martyr or a catalyst, uh, whatever. If they want to enforce the rules, they're going to have to enforce the rules. And at that point, I do think that there is an impact. I think if you get to a point of mass pushback with civil disobedience and they do start cracking down by force, I do think that that will set things off and make a huge difference. I think the smartest calculated decision on their behalf is just to stand by and do nothing, which is what I think they'll do and what they have been doing. So my last question here, what do you think is likely to happen from here? Like, do we eventually get back to normal? What are you seeing that's making you worried or making you hopeful? What are you curious about kind of going forward? Uh, honestly, I'm <laughs> I'm fairly pessimistic. Um, I guess my only optimism comes with uh, finding out more about the coronavirus and, uh, and I'm hopeful that it will be realized that it wasn't quite as bad as people thought. And, um, and that's not to say that it wasn't terrible and that a lot of people didn't die, but I don't think that it was justified for the actions that we took. Uh, in other words, I think that there was a massive overreaction. And I think that it's important to, if that's accurate based on the data that we come to that conclusion. And uh, I think that would be one of the only ways where we move forward in a way where we open back up completely. If not, if we're opening back up businesses at 25% and the market notices that many businesses never open back up, I think we're in for a lot of turmoil and trouble uh, with the economy and uh, overall just going forward over the next year or two years. Uh, And to some degree, I think that that's already going to happen no matter what we do at this point. Well, thank you very much for being on, on the show today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. So let's talk about talking for a moment. Why do I talk to radicals? And why do I, as I hear a lot of the time people say, why do I give them a platform? To be honest, for me, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. It's because it's easy to believe anything about somebody that we dislike and don't agree with. In other platforms, have you heard much from a perspective like Matthew Hayward's before? Is it what you imagined it to be? 
If you haven't heard this perspective, you know, then why not? Tons of news has been published about these folks who are protesting, and yet not a lot of it has actually asked a protester why they're doing what they're doing or talked about, you know, their general situation in life. There's a lot of assumptions being made about them, but a lot fewer actual questions asked to them. If Matthew's perspective isn't what you imagined it to be, then why is that? What have you been listening to? Does it offer a monolithic take on these protesters' motivations? If so, do you really think it's because they are monolithic? I think that seems unlikely, simply because it's unlikely that any group is completely a monolith. So why would the narrative of there being this this monolithic mass be the one that we so overwhelmingly hear? Additionally, suppose we never show an unpopular viewpoint, never allow it to sort of see the light of day. You know, be it dangerous or offensive, if you never hear these arguments, you'll never know why you don't believe in them. To be honest, many a smart person has been stymied by their own inexposure to an argument, even a very stupid argument. How much more can one be thrown by a clever argument or an earnest idea that one has never encountered? I realize that I talk about basically two things on this show, stupid arguments made by smart people and ideas and people that are not fashionable to try to understand. They're intimately related. Smart people make stu- stupid arguments when they believe themselves so smart that they don't need to like bother learning or understanding other people's viewpoints. If you believe you are a smart person, but you have chosen not to listen to people you're generalizing about or making claims about online, then you're choosing to speak with authority about something you've chosen not to understand. I think that's as bad as lying. If you've spoken about or spread opinions about these protesters, not about whether they are right or wrong, or whether they should be doing what they're doing, but about who they are as people and why they are doing this without bothering to investigate their stated purpose in protesting, then you might be a smart person. But what's the point in all that smarts and all those smarts, however you want to say that? What's the point in being a smart person if you're not using it to understand anybody? And you're actively and flagrantly just saying what you feel off the hip. So moving on to kind of a a related idea. You know, protests in Michigan have made news across the world because they're more extensive than many, particularly because the lockdown in Michigan has been more intense than it has been elsewhere. Gardening has popped up as a point of contention. Well, in Seattle, you can still pop over to the Fred Meyer and buy seeds, a shovel, etc. In Michigan, those areas of the store in at least some parts of Michigan are completely like cordoned off. I think this comes up a lot because folks don't see how this is preventing COVID at all. Of course, the Michigan governor continues to justify this by saying it's all about following the CDC's best guidelines for keeping everyone, and I'm quoting, doing little air quotes here, safe and healthy. Of course, some of this pushback has come from the fact that they can easily look at other states and see that they're not being treated the same way. Whether these measures are going to be deemed necessary in hindsight, they are more extreme and consequently have more extreme protests. And some of what we're seeing come out of this is some social media propaganda battling. I saw a Facebook post recently that said, not fake news, this breaks my heart. That was the caption that this person had written for an article that they had linked. The article had the headline, Michigan Governor Whitmer. Protesters carried nooses and Confederate flags and swastikas. This is in reference to when Governor Whitmer of Michigan was interviewed on the Today Show. 
She was actually asked a question about why protesters who were not social distancing and were carrying automatic weapons, who the interviewer says were clearly, and I quote, in violation of a number of laws, end quote, were not arrested. In response, the governor says, quote, unfortunately, right now in Michigan, we see a small number of people. It looks large on television, but when you think about that this is a state of 10 million people. This is a small, this is a small contingent that came out and made political statements. They carried nooses and Confederate flags and swastikas, end quote. Then she mentions that it's actually legal to open carry to kind of answer the question about why folks weren't arrested. Well, this answer is rolling. They're rolling picture after picture of the protests on the, te- on the television. There isn't a noose, a Confederate flag, or a swastika in sight. So I started looking for more pictures of the protests. I looked and looked, and I I really was trying to find these things. And all I ever found was a picture with a Confederate flag in a Virginia protest, so not even in Michigan, and one that featured a woman carrying a sign that said, Heil Whitmer, which did indeed have a swastika on it. This, I think, was not the implication that the governor was looking for when she mentioned the swastikas. She meant to characterize all of these protesters as racist, evil people. Notice how she could easily have said some protesters or several protesters were carrying these items. Nope. She just said of the whole group, they carried nooses and Confederate flags and swastikas. That really makes it sound like it was all of them, or at least a sizable enough contingent that for some reason that intimidated officers who might have arrested them, because that's actually what the question was about. She, of course, did not mention that the reason why at least one protester, the only one I could find with a picture uh, in, a, in any picture who actually had a swastika, uh, they were carrying it to call her Hitler. Now, before you do a, but they still shouldn't have had that sign thing. Yes, you're totally right. Comparisons to Hitler are almost invariably obfuscating the issue that they're actually trying to talk about. But if calling someone Hitler as a misguided political shock and awe tactic makes one a Nazi, then many a leftist from the year 2000 onward is a Nazi too. You can't be right of center and not at some point be called a Nazi. If you think, well, those people are right though, and they call people on the right a Nazi, then like, whatever, I mean, cool. If you're a person who genuinely thinks that every person on the right is a Nazi, then this probably isn't the program for you. Here's the thing. What the governor's statement evoked was white hoods and evil and horror. It was wanting those who are different than them to die horrific deaths. That's what this is invoking. It's talking about an entirely dangerous and evil mentality. This was truly a far cry from people who are misguided, who are trivializing an image to make a political point. I don't think they're these monstrous beasts that the governor was making them out to be. But I think she knew that her words would imply to people who would then share on Facebook that they were. The image the governor invoked was one of the greatest evils of all human history. The only substantiation I could find for what she claimed shows a bumpkin who stupidly thought they were making a clever political point because Whitmer sounds kind of like Hitler, I guess. This article... And those who reposted it online took the governor's word as substantiation enough. They didn't ask why the governor wanted them to be afraid of those protesting against her. They merely trusted her characterization of her own opposition. Again, that's asking to be lied to. Before I move on, I do want to briefly address the Confederate flag to that one person who I saw in a picture carrying a Confederate flag, who again was not in the same state that the protest was. Stop it. 
this argument is tired and stupid. You can claim heritage all you want, but that part of your heritage was dominated by the dearly held belief on the part of your ancestors that black people were not humans in the same way you are. So I don't really care if it's your heritage. You might have cool parts of your heritage too, but that part sucked a whole lot. And your actions suck too when you carry a Confederate flag. And if you can't see how damaging your actions are, and you don't care about the pain it's incurring, then the calories that are being used to power your brain are just kind of a waste. Anyway, going back to the governor's statements. This governor was not talking about one person in Virginia. She was characterizing swaths of protesters in her own state. She doesn't seem like a fool. She knows that many members of the public want to believe that the protesters are backwards, evil, twisted racists. She characterized them as such, and that's what people focused on. No matter that that's a politically motivated mischaracterization of a rather large number of people. She called a large number of people who are not, in fact, Nazis, Nazis. And that's real fucked up in its own way. She's preying on your fear just like anyone else who wants you to agree with them and trust their authority does. She doesn't like the questioning, so she called the questioners Nazis. But then it's posted on Facebook by a smart person with the caption, not fake news. I'm wondering how much political manipulation and half-truth has to be present in an article before it is fake news. Have we not crossed that threshold here? This is not to say that there are not horrible people also involved in these protests. It is simply to say that there's no reason to believe that the majority of these folks are Nazis and characterizing them as such because it's easier for you politically is manipulative and dishonest. But I think it explains why I find it important to look into it a little more and to talk to the Matthew Haywards of the world. So in summary today from me for this rant, for some of these protesters, it's a values question. The issue you may have with them is based on what values they hold dear, not necessarily something as trivial as their selfishness in wanting a haircut. Certainly doesn't mean that one needs to agree with them, but knowing there are smart people who disagree with you from a values-based perspective that isn't totally crazy is a good thing, I think. If nothing else, I think it's nice to know that there are people on the opposite side of an issue who aren't necessarily badly motivated. Certainly not recommending people go to these protests, I personally have not done enough in-depth scientific research, so I'm not at one as I'm sitting here writing this. I have chosen not to go to one that I could have um, just because I decided for myself, unless I'm putting in the work to take a calculated risk and I know at least somewhat kind of what I'm risking and can defend it, I'm not going to do it. I'm not saying they're right. I am saying it's worth understanding why people do what they do. And uh, I just don't see that happening a lot right now. So I'm going to end today's rant with just a brief mention of the fact that there are a lot of people carrying uh, semi-automatic rifles to these protests for whatever reason. Um, Really, this is a rant a bit about an admonishment to those who feel the need to bring semi-automatic rifles to a protest or who want to defend a Confederate flag being at such a protest. You know that those symbols or those, you know, tools, I suppose, which is what a a rifle would be, they instill fear in so many people. If your intent is not to do that, then leave them at home. Don't believe that you're causing those emotions. Do you really think that everyone's saying they feel fear and intimidation when they see these symbols is just lying? Because that would indicate that you just patently disbelieve swaths of people who are saying something pretty believable, 
that a tool, the purpose of which is to cause destruction, and a symbol historically associated with genocide, racism, and violence cause fear. That seems totally reasonable, even if they don't cause those same emotions in you. If you think more people should understand your perspective, but you're kind of dressing this way or presenting this front that inherently causes fear, it's not really on other people to try to understand you better if they feel like they're going to be physically putting themselves in a situation where they're afraid for their lives to do so. Like that's, you need to meet them halfway. Just leave that shit at home, man. I I believe that people are not lying when they say that these symbols invoke fear. Semi-automatic weapons and Confederate flags do cause fear. If you put them on your person and go to a protest, you know, why would anyone who is sensitive to those fears and those who have them, even someone who may agree with you to some extent about pandemic policies, care to associate with you? Like, you can defend these symbols all you like, but if at the end of the day you're alienating yourself from a lot of reasonable and kind people, I don't blame them for not seeing your message through your outfit choice. It is not on them to figure that out. Yeah, I guess I'm tone policing the right here a little bit. So, you know, take it as you will. Um, It's totally possible to fight hard for messages you believe in without utilizing these things. Um, Yeah, you don't need to cause terror in others to have a valid political point. Unless, of course, you enjoy causing that fear, in which case, I'm sorry you feel so weak and unheard in your life, but enjoying causing fear and pain in others is pathetic and sad, and it's totally weak. It doesn't really bolster your point, and I hope you gain some self-respect, some self-confidence, so you no longer feel like you have to arm up to have a political discussion. Uh, You can't have a political discussion if you're actively trying to intimidate your opponent. If you're so scared of political disagreement that you need a semi-automatic to engage in it, then, I don't know, I guess I recommend some therapy. I don't even mean that in some shitty, you're crazy way. Like, I go to therapy all the time. It's great. But if you're that scared, you really just need to chill, and you might need some professional help chilling if you think you need an AR-15 to go out and say something political. Um, To reiterate, some protests are reasonable places for guns, If they are gun-oriented and people can expect that there will be guns there, you know, a Second Amendment rally, you're not going to be shocked that there are guns there. Uh, Some protests are not reasonable places for guns if they are, say, you know, about a virus and economic impact uh, from government overreach. At none of these protests does a Confederate flag advance your cause, unless your cause is to cause fear, in which case you are the human equivalent of a canker sore. So that is the end of my rant for today. I'm going to now move on to something that I didn't hate. Many things in the world are a bummer, so every week I want to highlight something I didn't hate in my weekly segment, something I didn't hate. Um, so I actually, a lot of times these are things I'm watching because, you know, it's quarantine and whatever. We're watching a lot of TV, which is probably too much, but whatever. Um, I just, we just finished watching Never Have I Ever, which is the new Mindy Kaling TV show on Netflix, which is the story of an Indian American girl whose father dies right at the beginning of the series. That is not a spoiler. That's like the first scene. Um, And she is struggling to reconcile her, you know, culture, her wanting to date a cute guy, her being extremely driven and ambitious uh, with the fact that she doesn't want to have this narrative of being the, you know, Indian girl whose dad died at a concert 
at her school, you know, and it's, it's very relatable. Um, and also I always love Mindy Kaling shows just because they're so brightly colored. I know that sounds very silly, but it's, it's almost this hyper realistic feel for these very relatable feelings. Um, with any Mindy Kaling show, the lines are punchy and funny, and it's one of the few half hour comedies that has made me like really feel feelings, uh, in such a way in just eight episodes, you know, a lot of sitcoms can make you feel something after they've been on for four seasons and you're really invested in the characters, but after eight episodes, your heart is just so in this show. Um, yeah, so it's a great, it's a lovely show. If you want something that's somehow both light and meaningful, I highly recommend it. Um, it's really cool also to see, honestly, I think people learn about the culture of others more if it's instilled in pop culture than anywhere else. Um, I have learned about Judaism from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I've learned about Hinduism from Never Have I Ever, and I think that's pretty cool. So yeah, I thought that was pretty okay, and it's nice to know that there are nice things in the world. Thank you for listening to Disagreeable Subjects. If you want more content, check out disagreeablesubjects.com. You can follow me on Instagram at disagreeableliesel. You can follow Disagreeable Subjects on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash disagreeablepod or, or follow me on Twitter at L underscore Tadler, T-A-D-L-E-R. To be honest, the Twitter is mostly jokes. If you really love me and want to support the podcast, then head over to my Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can grab gems like me talking with my mom about political movies that we think are good. That would be on my podcast, Disagreeable Movies, where my friends and I talk about politically themed movies. It's awesome. Well, have a lovely week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>